Good morning again, everybody. Hopefully, uh, we'll finish chapter 12 of John. So, what did we do last week? Well, we continued looking at Jesus' final public teaching before he's crucified. And I just want to focus on one little bit before we move on. So, last week, uh, in John chapter 12, Jesus lets us in on the secret of life. People say, get a life. And you've probably heard people say that to you. And Jesus tells us how to get a life. And he says it's not by asserting yourself, not by pampering yourself, not by changing or improving yourself, but by dying to self. Jesus said that it's only if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies that a new plant can grow and produce more grain. So mortification produces multiplication. Death results in fruitfulness. We can't enjoy the new life unless we let go of the old life. We can only hold on to one thing at a time. So practically speaking, here's an example. If two people are struggling in their marriage, they're fighting in their marriage, and neither are willing to die to self, to count or reckon their sinful nature as having been crucified with Christ, to be willing to sacrifice their own individual ambitions, goals and desires, then their relationship will die. Their marriage will die. But if the two people are willing to die to their own desires, to let go of their individualistic way of doing things, their own rights, then selfishness will die and selflessness will rule and the marriage will be fruitful and beautiful and the sweet smell and taste of the fruits of the Spirit will be obvious to everyone around them. And that's the same as our relationship with Christ. The extent that our relationship with Christ will be fruitful and produce the fruits of the Spirit is equal to the extent that our own will is dead or surrendered. So just like demanding our own way and rights kills a marriage or friendship, so demanding our own way destroys our relationship with God. Babies demand, mature people seek to give to and to help others. So selfishness destroys anything that is good, anything that is from God. And selfishness could be considered as a definition of the sinful nature. Selfishness says, I want my own way regardless of how it affects you. Selflessness says the opposite. I want what is best for you no matter how it affects me. This could be considered as a definition for what it makes me Christ-like as demonstrated when Jesus sacrificed himself when he died on the cross for our sins. The ultimate demonstration of dying to self and selflessness and the ultimate example for us to follow. Now, I thought of this. I'm really not looking forward to doing it, to be honest, but it's a challenge for you, okay? A good measure for how Christ-like we really are, if what I'm saying is true about being other-centered and Christ-centered, with other-centered and Christ-centered, what we should be becoming and self-centered is how we were, a good measure for how Christ-like we really are is to ask someone close to us to rate us on a selfishness scale from 1 to 10. Ooh, with 10 being completely selfish, ask them to let you know if there are any areas of your life where you are still thinking of yourself more than others. And this should lead to some soul-searching. Now, I'm going to try and do it this week. I've got the holidays and I might be able to recover by next week. 
Here is a good prayer to pray with this in mind. And it's Psalm 19, 12 to 14. It says, How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. And I would consider selfishness as a hidden fault because it's hidden from us at least. Everyone else can see it except the person who's selfish. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I'll be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. So the way we think. Are we thinking selfishly? Or are we thinking of others? Especially Jesus. Putting God first. So, let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for that image of the grain falling into the ground and then producing fruit. But the original grain, it dies, it shrivels up, and it's gone. And the new plant is in its place. And I just pray that our old lives, we could consider them, reckon them as dead. The old man is being dead. And the old way we used to live is being a thing of the past. And help us to be seeking you, spending lots and lots of time with you, in your presence, just us, one-on-one, so we can be before the face of God, before the throne of God. And Lord, that's when we will be changed. As we spend time with you, we will become like you. So help us, Lord, as we, um, if we do take up that challenge, and uh, we get some news that we don't like about ourselves, help us to go to the throne and uh, commit those things to you. And Lord, that we can be transformed into your image more and more. And that process will be quick, we pray, and not slow. So we can become more effective in your kingdom. Amen. So, this week, it's John chapter 12, verses 31 to 50. Jesus talks about the way he will die, be lifted up. And the consequences of what happens if a person continues to refuse to believe or harden their heart against the conviction of the Holy Spirit, against the drawing of the Father. And we'll talk about the unforgivable sin. So verse 31 in John chapter 12, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. 
These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So let's go back to the beginning of that section, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So that which has damned humanity, that which has held mankind in bondage, sin, is being judged by Jesus going to the cross. And I've got a verse that helps us to understand that. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. I'm going to read that verse 15 in the New King James Version. It says, And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It just says it a little bit differently. It just brings out this bondage, this fear that we need to be set free from. And this is why the gospel is such good news. It's fantastic. It's all about something that is beyond us achieving or doing on our own. It's a supernatural deliverance. I get excited when I start thinking about it. We're completely unable to help ourselves and God steps in, steps down, and he does all this for us. And it says, Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Because the sin of the world is being judged, the prince of this world is cast out. So when you sin, you give Satan a handle to grab, a foothold, as it says in the word. But the good news of the gospel is that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. That's 1 John 1, 7. Therefore, because Satan has no more dominion over you, no more foothold in your life, no more grip on your heart, he is cast out. The only influence Satan has over us as Christians is the influence that we willingly allow him to have. The things that we won't give up from the old life. And we need to remember that we have the authority in Christ to tell him to leave at any time. 
we have the authority in Christ to say no to any sin at any time. We have power over Satan, the world, and the flesh. And a verse to help us, to, just to show I'm not making all this up, Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says, He cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So, the record of charges against us is our sins. Every sin that we've committed was recorded. Now, it's wiped away. It's taken away. It's gone. It's erased because it's been paid for. The fine has been paid. We are now considered innocent by the law. Talking about civil law there. And because we do not have any sin against us anymore, it's all gone, Satan has been disarmed. He no longer has any power over us. And now Satan has been shamed by Jesus' victory on the cross. Satan thought he was shaming Christ. Actually, he ended up being shamed. And it's no wonder that Jesus snorted in anger at the tomb of Lazarus. He knew the battle to come. And he knew the freedom that he would win for anyone who would choose to repent and trust him as a payment for their sins. So verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. Now the word for lifted up can mean both literally to lift up, elevate, or to exalt. Here it means to elevate and the people understood that Jesus meant to be elevated on a cross. So it was a way of describing crucifixion. And Jesus said that he would draw all to him. Now, one way we can apply this is the cross must be the center. The cross is cross-generational. <laughs> Bit of a plan words there. We don't have to be hip to reach the kids or conservative to reach the older people because the cross is what draws all men to Jesus. So teach the cross, share the cross, walk in the light of the cross, revel in its riches and apply it to your life. Share it with your friends, however young or old they may be, and they will be drawn to Jesus just as we were. And they will find life in death. Verse 34, the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say, The Son of Man must be lifted up, who is the Son of Man? So basically they're saying, What do you mean? You know, the scribes and Pharisees have been teaching us for all these years that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be this king who's going to deliver us from the Romans. But they didn't understand that there's two comings. There's the first coming where Jesus dies He's the lamb which will be sacrificed to die for the sins of the world, for you and me. But the second coming is when he comes as a lion of Judah who will rule eternally. He comes as a conquering king. And so this helps us to understand why the crowd greeted Jesus as a political conqueror, as the king, king of Israel, with such enthusiasm. But at this point here, this is where it starts to turn around. They're thinking, political king, deliverance of the Romans, yes, this is great. And then Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be lifted up. And they're saying, uh, not so great, not so enthusiastic. And 
we're going to see their um, opinion of him completely turn around because Jesus doesn't fit their their expectations. They'll end up saying crucify him instead of Hosanna. So verse 35, then Jesus said to them, so this is Jesus' answer to this question, their confusion about why he's going to be crucified when they think he should be the um, political ruler. A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So, it's kind of a weird answer. He doesn't talk about, oh, don't you understand this is first coming and the second coming? He could have quoted scripture, but he doesn't. He talks about himself. He talks about the need for a relationship with him. He says, stay near me, enjoy me, be in relationship with me, link yourself to me. And it says, while there is the light, this verse or these verses remind us that we don't have unlimited time to respond. We must believe on Jesus while the light is there because it won't last forever. Genesis 6.3 says, God's spirit will not always strive with man and we must answer his call while it still rings. As Hebrews says, today is a day of salvation. Uh, verse 37, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. Now this is a sad verse, okay? But it's also uh, informative because... Miracles do not produce faith. It's interesting. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him. So if miracles don't produce faith, what does produce faith? I'll give you a hint. It's found in Romans 10, 7, 8. It's the word of God. Well done. So the only path to faith is to be in the word and to apply the word, to put it into practice. So John is basically answering the question here, if Jesus was so great... Why didn't everyone believe him? Why didn't everyone follow him if he was truly God, if he was such a great person? And so that's what John is doing now. And he's using two quotations from Isaiah to show that this was actually prophesied, that what is happening was prophesied a long time ago. So verse 38. Now it starts with the word that, but that word that you could also translate as consequently. Okay, so consequently, the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. So, therefore, they would not believe. And then verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. To me, that's the saddest, most disappointing verse in the Bible. Therefore, they could not believe. What it means is you can harden your heart to the place where you cannot believe. They had seen so many miracles, but they refused to believe. And therefore, we must believe while there is light. And for us individually today, it means while we're still being convicted by the Holy Spirit, still being drawn by the Father. If we continue to refuse, it says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. So there comes a place when God will strengthen us 
in our decision, whether for Jesus or against Jesus. Ultimately, God gives us what we want. And you know what? Sometimes the worst thing we can get is what we want. And those who push Jesus away again and again and again and again and reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their hearts will eventually get what they want and God will say, okay, you don't want anything to do with me? Done. So this is what it's saying here. Now I want to dig a bit deeper here and explain the gospel a little before we move on. So just the basic gospel. So let's go back to our sinful nature. Because of our sinful nature, none of us seek after God. Okay, so it says in Psalm 14, to 3, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So, how many of us are there who by nature, prior to Christ, do good? Well, there's none. And in verse 2, it's interesting. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. What does it say? Verse 3, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And these verses are quoted in Romans as well. Romans chapter 3. So, this is not looking good for us. You know, if God didn't want to save us, if he chose not to, then we would be stuck. And it only gets worse. If you look in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3, it says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So, These verses in Ephesians tell us that not only do we not seek God, but we are also subject to his anger or wrath because every time we sin, it's recorded and we must pay for that sin. David says in Psalm 51 verse 5, For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. So to put this another way, those who are spiritually dead, ruled by their sinful nature, are by nature enemies of God. And Romans 8, 7 to 8 says this, For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of the sinful nature can never please God. And Colossians one twenty one says, This includes you who were once far away from God, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. And because of this sinful nature, because of our sin, we had no hope. Ephesians 2.12 says, In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel 
and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So this is the start of the gospel. We need to realize that this is where we all started, without hope, without God, apart from Christ. And so the gospel is God reaching down in grace and mercy to a lost world and giving us hope. So the gospel is all about, or our salvation is all about, God seeking and saving those who were lost. It's all about what God has done. God takes the initiative. God makes the first move. It's God who takes the first step. And it's all grace. So none of us who are saved can take any credit whatsoever for our present blessed state of being in Christ. Again, it's all grace. Romans 9.16 says, So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. And then Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, and Titus 3, 4 to 7, capture God's heart and the way he loves us. It says, But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace you have been saved. So this explains why Jesus needed to die. And then Titus 3, 4 to 7, But when the kindness and the love of God, our Saviour, toward men appeared. Notice it's the love of God, our Saviour. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Notice Jesus dying on the cross is the means. Okay? that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So when you start to understand this, you can start to sing that song Amazing Grace with a bit of fervor. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. So those who would not believe in verse 37 could not believe in verse 39. Since they didn't want to believe, they weren't able to believe because God hardened their hearts. Again, why? It was to ratify or solidify their choice, to agree with them, to give them what they wanted. And the same is true today, unfortunately. To those who don't want to believe, to those who continually stand in the posture of unbelief, who continually refuse the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and the drawing of the Father, there will come a time when they cannot believe. And this is often referred to as the unforgivable sin. And it's spoken of in Matthew twelve thirty-one and 32. And it says, So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. And there's a great picture of this in the Old Testament. And uh, it's Pharaoh. You know about Pharaoh and the Ten Plagues? I'm not going to go into it very much. Just to say this, sometimes it said that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, like in Exodus 4.21, Sometimes it says that 
Pharaoh hardened his own heart, Exodus 8.15. And sometimes it simply says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened without saying who did it, Exodus 7.13. So, who really hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, it was Pharaoh, and God agreed with Pharaoh that, well, this is what you want, this is what you can have. I'm giving you the desires of your heart. Think about this. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he never did it against Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh never said, oh, I really want to do what is right and let the people of Israel go. Oh, Israel, people of Israel, Moses, take your people. I want them to go. Oh, but God stop me. No, I can't let you go. You know, it wasn't like that. You know, Pharaoh's heart was already hard. It was already against the children of Israel. And God gave him many, many chances, in fact, 10, to repent. But he continued to refuse. And so God gave Pharaoh over to his sin. And you read about that in Romans 1, 18 to 32, which I won't read now. So it's another example that it's a dangerous thing to harden your heart against God because if you persist in hardening your heart against God, God will eventually agree with you. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Jesus said, referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, when we harden our hearts against the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to read those verses 36 to 41 again. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Now some people might have this question. They say, well, how much does it take to cause God to agree with you and to say that's enough? You come to that place where you would not believe, now you could not believe. Well, I'd like to go back into the Old Testament and just read two passages and show you how much God put up with before he said that's enough. Okay? So the first one is Isaiah 65 and reading verses 2 to 5. And this is talking about the people, the Jews, living in Jerusalem just before the Babylonian exile. God repeatedly asked them to repent, and this is how they responded to God's invitation of salvation. All right, so Isaiah 65, verses 2 to 5. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, are people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. Wow, can you imagine saying that to God? Well, that's what these people were doing. Here's a little bit more from Isaiah 30, verses 9 to 13. This is God's description. This is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. 
who say to the seers or the prophets, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Wow. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity or sin shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. So you imagine this big wall and it's bulging and one day it's just going to, with a big and loud noise, it's going to go crash. So everything you thought was strong, everything that you thought you could trust in will be destroyed and that'll be it. There's no more opportunity for salvation. So what we need to understand is that God only hardened their hearts after they repeatedly refused to submit to God. So John is going back to the Old Testament saying God hardened their hearts in the Old Testament because they repeatedly refused to believe. And the same is true for the Pharaoh, and the same is true for the Pharisees, and the same is true for people today. Now what is God's heart for us? Just to remind us. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, his second coming, as some count slackness. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But what we need to understand is that even God's patience has limits. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 3, 7-11, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in the heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So if you're not saved, then today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off because there may not be another chance. Firstly, you may die today in car accident or heart attack, whatever. And secondly, your heart may become hardened beyond the point of return. You may have rejected the conviction of the Holy Spirit one time too many. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, just um, spending a, a minute looking into this. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Why is it called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? All right. Well, if we go to John 16, verses 7 to 11, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper would not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That's coming back to our passage today. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, singular, it's one, which is the sin of unbelief. So why this? Because our sin is what separates us from God. Sin is the problem. The Holy Spirit is getting to the root of the problem. So what is he asking us to believe? Very simply, in 1 John five ten to 12 He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. 
He who does not believe God has made him a liar. This is really important that when we reject the witness of the Holy Spirit, we're actually saying, when we say, I don't believe you, we're actually saying, you're a liar. Because when you say to someone, you know, if someone tells you something and say, no, I think that's not true, I think you're lying. Okay, that, or when you say, no, I don't agree with you, and they've said something to you, you're basically saying, no, you're lying, you're wrong. So he who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And people just refuse to believe it. So one more thing they need to believe, and that's in 1 John 1, 8-10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, the Holy Spirit is convicting us of the sin of not believing. And there's two ways we can respond. We can believe the Holy Spirit. We can believe God when he reveals to us that we are sinners and that Jesus, the Savior of the world, wants to grant us forgiveness and give us eternal life. Or we can choose to not believe that we are sinners. Instead, that we're good people, that we haven't broken God's perfect and holy law, and we'll get to heaven on our own merit or there is no heaven whatever you would choose to believe which is different so summary when a person doesn't believe they are calling the Holy Spirit a liar which is blasphemy and is the only sin which won't be forgiven now this is why it's so important to use the Ten Commandments when we're witnessing we must use the Ten Commandments when witnessing because understanding that you are a sinner is a prerequisite for salvation. So when we share the Ten Commandments with people, we are working with the Holy Spirit in convicting them of their sin, which can lead to salvation if they choose to repent. Okay? That's why we must use the Ten Commandments, because the Spirit uses that to convict the person. So that's why sin and repentance must be a part of every gospel presentation. It's the heart of the gospel. And uh, here are a couple of examples. Uh, Romans 7 verse 7, this is Paul speaking. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. So how did Paul know that coveting was wrong? How did he know that he was sinning by coveting? By the law of God. And Galatians 2, 24 and 25 says, Paul again saying, Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So the law is our tutor, our schoolmaster, guardian. And it brings us to Christ. It points us to Christ. We need to know that we've broken the law to see a need for the Saviour. So, verse 41, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So, verse 41 was initially given in Isaiah 6, verse 1. Alright? 
And everyone, including the Jehovah's Witnesses, agrees that Isaiah 6 concerns Jehovah or Yahweh. All right, But here John says Isaiah spoke of him, and the subject here is Jesus. So John is applying this verse to Jesus. So it's clear, it's obvious back in Isaiah chapter 6 that it's referring to Yahweh or Jehovah, God the Father as they might say. But here, John the Apostle applies this to Jesus. So this is a good verse to use when you're discussing the deity of Christ. And verse 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So they did not confess him, some of these religious leaders believed in him, but they would not make it public because they were afraid to lose their position. Yeah. So this love of the praise of men is deadly and it keeps many from a life which is fully committed to God. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So this is an interesting question. Is it possible to be a secret follower of Jesus? Hmm. This is one opinion, only temporarily. Either the secrecy will cancel out the belief or the belief will cancel out the secrecy. I believe the true believer cannot stay silent, but the false convert can and often does. And here's what I use to back up my, my theory. Jeremiah 20 verse 9. But if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, his word burns in my heart like a fire. It is like a fire in my bones. I am worn out trying to hold it in. I can't do it. So for the true Christian, we can't stay silent. Spirit's working in us. We are a new person. We have, you know, we just come out. For the false convert, not so. So verse 44 So these words here we're going to read now are the last words in John's Gospel that Jesus speaks to the public. Okay, And it's a summary of all his teaching so far in the book of John. So it says, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So let's just break it down real quick. He who sees me sees him who sent me. Now, we spent a whole chapter going through Jesus stressing his unity or explaining his unity with God the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. Okay? He said there, I have come as a light into the world. Well, there was almost a whole chapter where Jesus was explaining how he is the light of the world. He said, I am 
the light of the world. And it reminds us that we need to follow him. We need the light to see where to go. The next main point here is I do not judge him. So Jesus is stressing his love and acceptance for the sinner, yet the word that I have spoken will judge him. So there are inescapable consequences for rejecting Jesus. Jesus is coming the first time to save, but he will come the second time to judge. And it's what we do with his word in the meantime that will affect how we will go in the judgment. Are we going to have our sins covered or not? And the last main point that he says here is, I have not spoken on my own authority. So Jesus, like he did quite a few times, he's stressing his own submission to God the Father. His authority flowed from his submission to God the Father. And the same is true for us today. The more submitted to the Father we are, the more powerful or the more power and love will flow through us as we become more and more available for the Master's use. So, Jesus finishes his public ministry with the promise that he who embraces his word would have everlasting life. And in the next three chapters, Jesus takes his disciples and huddles them together and he teaches them. And it's called the, or some people call it the upper room discourse. And there's some pretty um, amazing things that he teaches them. So in the next few weeks, we'll look forward to going through them. But today, remember the very sobering lesson. Would not believe led to could not believe. It's a very, very pertinent thing. So pray for those who aren't saved. Don't ever miss a chance to witness, to Use the law to plough the hard ground because if not, if they are not convicted of their sin, then they will they will go to hell. God wants us to work with him and we need to work with him to help people understand that they are sinners. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the warning that you've given us in these verses. They had seen so many miracles, so much evidence. They had God himself living among them. They had not just seen the miracles, they had seen his way of life, his gentleness, the perfect fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, all these things and just, they were blind. And God, you respect our free will. Lord, I just pray that you help us to continue praying. Lord, please continue to show mercy to our lost friends and family. Stir in us a desire to continue reaching out to the lost, to make sure that we use the law because the Spirit convicts people of their sin and the law is what reveals their sin to them. Like Paul said, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, do not covet. People don't realize that. Liars and thieves and blasphemers and adulterers at heart and murderers at heart, unless we go through the commandments and reveal to them, or the Spirit reveals to them, their guilt before God and their predicament at Judgment Day when they will be found guilty and sent to everlasting separation from God, the second death, hell. So I just thank you, Father, for the opportunity we have had to be saved that it's all about you, it's nothing to do with us, it's all your grace. We can't earn it, we can't work for it, 
It's way beyond us. It's a supernatural, miraculous deliverance that you have provided for us. Help us to be thankful and help us to use the rest of our days to make sure that we're telling people about you and to grow close to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.